0: You may be seated. And if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 is where we are going to spend our time this morning. We are currently studying through the book of Philippians and we are coming to one of the greatest passages dealing with the gospel. Have this mind, this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clutched on to, held on to at all costs, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being made in the likeness of human flesh, being made as a man. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as we begin our study through those verses, I wanted to take this Sunday just to highlight once again for us the truth of the gospel, the glorious truths found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can never hear that too many times. We can never fully wrap our minds around it. I always like to say that in heaven, we will know exactly what the end times look like. We will know whether we should have been premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. We'll know who's right when we get to heaven. We'll know that because it'll be over, it's done. No need to worry about it anymore. We'll know a lot of mysteries about the Bible and a lot of mysteries about who God is and how he has acted on behalf of those that he loves. But One thing that we are never going to fully wrap our minds around, one thing that we are going to be singing about and praising the Lord about for all of eternity is the cross. Even now, the song that echoes in the halls of heaven is, worthy is the lamb who was slain. The cross is the center of heaven because the lamb slain on that cross is the center of heaven. So I want to remind us this morning of the glorious truths of the gospel, and we're going to look at the gospel in an amazing passage that is familiar to us all, Isaiah chapter 6. If you've ever read the book Radical by David Platt, you're going to find a lot of this familiar to you because these points are really from his book, and I found that I just could not do a better job than he did as he worked through this material in Isaiah chapter 6. But as we're preparing for Philippians chapter 2, and we're preparing for the gospel and the mindset that Jesus Christ had when he came to save sinners such as you and I, and also as we prepare for the study that we are going to be going through this next semester, through the gospel and personal evangelism, as we prepare to step outside of our comfort zone, so to speak, and share the gospel. We are ready to encourage people with the truth of God's word once they gather in the building. Now we know, expository listening, we know how to rightly appropriate the sermons and the truth of God's word. We've studied that. We've internalized that. We know that now. And so when people come in these doors, we can encourage them with the truth and the, the reality of discipleship but now it's time to go outside these doors and make disciples. The message of the gospel, a message that Isaiah hears in Isaiah chapter 6, is a message that motivates him at the end of everything that he sees and everything that he hears and everything that happens to him. It makes him say, send me. Here am I, send me. I want to deliver that message. No message is better to share in the entire universe. Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 1, and I want to look at four life-altering truths in this text that we must apply to our lives if we are going to live rightly before a holy God and we're going to share urgently the message of the gospel. Four life-altering truths in this text. And the first one we find in verse 1, and really verses 1 through 4, and it is this, we have an incomprehensibly glorious God We have an incomprehensibly glorious God. Verse 1 of chapter 6, "...in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he fled." And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah writes in verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I think he writes this for multiple reasons. Number one, he wants to give us a proper chronology of when these things are taking place, when these accounts are happening. But I think more than that, he wants us to remember how King Uzziah died, the manner of King Uzziah's death. I think he wants us to remember King Uzziah, how he lived, how he died, his reign, his rule. Our president's rule, if you will, reign, if you will, for four years, maybe eight years. Remember how many years King Uzziah reigned? 52 years. And the majority of that reign was a righteous, God honoring reign. He tore down idols, he tore down the high places that were idolatrous, sacrificing babies to the god Molech, sacrificing all sorts of different things to appease pagan idols. The majority of his reign was a righteous one. But a good beginning does not necessitate and equal a good ending. And you remember the end of King Uzziah's life. How did King Uzziah die? He was struck down with leprosy. He was struck down with leprosy because he, in his pride, even though it was unlawful for a king to enter the temple and offer incense to the Lord, he thought, I am awesome, I'm awesome, I'm better than everybody else, look at all the things that I've done for God, surely I can bypass that rule and enter unharmed. And God said, no, you are not allowed to do that. And the priests linked arms together and barred the doors and said, how dare you go in, you are not allowed to do that, only priests are allowed to do that. And he said, who are you to tell me what to do? I'm the king. I could have you killed instantly, let me go by. And he rushes past the priest's, and in a very ironic scene, as he's, quote-unquote, worshiping the Lord with incense, he is sinning in his pride before God, saying, I don't care what you say, God. I want to do what I want to do. And God strikes him with leprosy, and he dies a leper. He dies a leper. A good king, a good start, an awful finish. All of that is found for us in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And I think Isaiah wants us to remember there was a very good king, but his reign came to an end, and every king's reign comes to an end. Presidents come and go, kings come and go, but there is one king who never had a beginning, never will have an ending, and that king is gloriously eternal, righteous, holy, and he reigns today, yesterday, today, and forever the same, and that is our God. Our God reigns our God reigns. King Uzziah's body is rotting in the grave, but Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne. He's never going to be off of that throne. He's never going to die. He's never going to be like this King Uzziah. He reigns in holiness. He's lofty. He's exalted, and the train of his robe is filling the temple. Isaiah describes for us in verse 2 these amazing beings. These things are something either out of the most amazing story, glorious story, or something out of like a nightmare. These things are crazy and freaky. They're called seraphim. That's literally a Hebrew word. It hasn't been translated because we don't really know how to translate it. Technically, they are burning ones, but we don't know what they're burning with. We know that they're angels. We know that they are burning ones. What's that, that word really means? It literally means burning ones, but are they burning with fire? Are they burning with passion? What are they burning with? So we just leave it seraphim, you know Another Hebrew word to put into your arsenal of Hebrew words. And they're burning with passion for the Lord. Maybe they are on fire. My guess is it's more of unquenchable passion for who God is. And they stand above God, each having six wings. With two, he's covering his face. With two, he's covering his feet. With two, they're flying. And they're calling out to one another, they're crying out to one another. What is their song selection? What is their artist of choice? Are they picking from Chris Tomlin? Are they picking from Matt Redman? Are they picking from a hymnal? Are they picking from David Crowder? Are they picking from Enfield or Sovereign Grace? What's their song selection of choice? It's a song that is familiar to us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is a song that's not only familiar to us, it's familiar to them. This is a song that these angels have been singing. It's interesting, if you look at Isaiah chapter six and then you would turn to Revelation, if we had time, we'd look at it. But in Revelation, you see the song come up four different times and it's the exact same identical song that's being sung. Almost 500 years between Isaiah being written and Revelation being written and they have the exact same song on their lips. They're burning with passion to sing of the holiness of Of their God. And what is God's holiness? How could we define his holiness? Many people say sinless. And that is true. God has never had a wrong thought, never a wrong action, never spoken a sinful word. He cannot lie. God does not sin, can never sin. But you know what? These angels are sinless as well. These angels have never told a lie, these angels have never sinned. They are also sinless, but they're praising the holiness of God because holiness is so much more than sinlessness. It's being completely different. It's being completely set apart. And so they're crying out to one another, holy, 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 other, 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 set apart, set apart, set apart. He is unlike anyone in the entire universe. No one can be compared to our God Isaiah will write in Isaiah chapter 40, he repeats the words of God when God says, to whom will you compare me, says the Holy One of Israel. You can't compare God to anyone. Isaiah chapter 45, there is no one like our God. He is holy and we will praise him with our lips. There is no one like our God. And they say something interesting at the end of their song, and it's something that always baffled me. And As I studied it, it really um, defines for us what holiness and glory are together. They sing, they're, they're infatuated with the holiness of God. And they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His. And if I was them logically fulfilling this sentence and filling it with what I'm infatuated with, I would say the whole earth is filled with His holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His holiness. But they say the whole earth is full of his glory. Why change the word? It reminds me of Romans chapter 3, verse 23. What does it say? All have sinned and all have fallen short of what? The glory of God. Not the holiness of God, the glory of God. So what is glory? Here's a definition you can write down for glory. Glory is simply God's holiness on display for all to see. God is holy, but we don't see his holiness because we're not in heaven, but we see his holiness on display in what is called his glory. That's why Romans 1 says that people are without excuse. They see there is a God and he is glorious and he is holy and he is set apart and he has created us and we are accountable to him. One pastor says God's glory is his holiness going public. These angels are infatuated with the fact that There is no one like our God. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. Turn to Isaiah chapter 36. Isaiah chapter 36. I want you to see an amazing portion of scripture. I love this portion of scripture. If you think that there was trash talking going on in last week's championship game um, with AFC and NFC, and there was much happening, there was much trash talking, but the trash talking that we saw there is nothing compared to the trash talking that we see in these verses. I find these verses humorous and absolutely depressing. You remember the story here. The Assyrians have come in through the north. They have destroyed the northern kingdom and they are going down into the southern kingdom to try and take over Jerusalem and take over all of Israel. Now we know based on history that's going to fail. Because we know that Assyria doesn't destroy the south. Who destroys the south? Babylon comes in. They destroy the south. So we know Assyria is going to fail. Let's, let's go to the end and know they're going to lose this battle. But in the moment that they're riding, it doesn't look like they're going to lose this battle. They have 185,000 troops, Assyrian troops, circled around Jerusalem. Their king's name is Sennacherib. And he sends a little troop out, just a little peon, pawn troop, To start some trash talking, Isaiah chapter 36, verse 18, this little troop says to the Israelites that are ready to do battle with these 185,000 Assyrians, beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you. Hezekiah is the king uh, reigning in Jerusalem, and he says, beware that your king doesn't mislead you, saying, the Lord will deliver us, which Hezekiah has been saying, Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Oh, you think your God's gonna protect you? Nope, no God has protected any nation, any land whatsoever. So your God's no different. So don't listen to your lying king Hezekiah who says the Lord will defend us, the Lord will protect us. Go down to verse 20. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? It's not going to work. Sennacherib's going to win the day. Don't listen to your king who claims that God is greater. Turn to Isaiah chapter 37, verse 22. We'll start in verse 23. This is God. He speaks up in the midst of this trash talking and says, Now you hear me. Verse 23, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice? Do you even know who you're speaking about, Sennacherib? Do you even know who you're speaking about? You have pridefully lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel, the one who is set apart completely different. Through your servants, you have approached the Lord, verse 24, and you have said, with many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon. I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses, and I will go to its highest peak and its thickest forest. I dug wells, I drank waters. With the sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. I've done all these things. But verse 26, have you not heard? Sennacherib says, look at all of the glories and the triumphs of my crusades. And God says, oh, have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. And I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Oh, Sennacherib, you think you are in charge of yourself and your destiny? No, I am using you. You are my pawn. And I get to do with you what I want and what I wish. You think you're king in this chess game? You are nothing but a, a, an expendable pawn. Who cares about you? I get to use you and then throw you away. And then he says, therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. Verse 27, they were dismayed, put to shame because I did it. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb and grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up. I know you're sitting down. I know you're going out. I know you're coming in. I know everything about you, King Sennacherib. I know you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I'm going to do what you want to do with my people. The Assyrians would come in and they would force you to submit by taking their prisoners captive and and shoving a hook into their nose and leading them out back to Assyria with a hook in their nose. And God says, you do that to your enemies, I am going to do that to you. I will put my hook in your nose, my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back the way which you came I will turn you back. Verse 33, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city, to Jerusalem. He's not even going to be able to shoot an arrow there. And he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return. And he will not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So what happens? Verse 36, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, kills them all. And when the Israelite men arose in the morning, behold, they were all dead, all of the Assyrians. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departs. He walks away as he sees his entire army destroyed. He returns home. He lives in Nineveh. And we know Nineveh through the book of Jonah. It's a very desperately wicked city. And it comes about, verse thirty, as he's worshiping his own God, that two of his sons come in and kill him with the sword, and then they escape into the land of Ararat, and one of his sons becomes king in his place. Mark this down. You do not mess with God. You cannot mess with the God of the universe. Our God reigns. He is sovereign over all. He is incomprehensibly glorious in his ruling and in his reigning and this, brothers and sisters, is good news. This is good news. Kings will come and go. Even the most wicked, the Stalins, the Hitlers, they are not sovereign in power. Only our God is sovereign. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, not only do we see that we have an incomprehensibly glorious God, number two, we have a sinfully we are a sinfully lost people we have a sinfully lost condition in our hearts in verse four as the foundation of the thresholds of the temple are shaking which either means that heaven is a small place or angels sing very loudly and my guess is heaven is not a small place so i'm pretty sure that angels are thundering with their voices and as they sing Isaiah's response as he's watching all of this, what would the common evangelical pastor say that the response of seeing God and beholding God would be, wow, this is awesome, I got to see God. Is that Isaiah's response? No, his response is not wow, but woe. Woe to me, I am condemned, I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. I'm ruined. I'm condemned. I am to be condemned to hell because I am a sinner in the presence of holiness. I can't stand here. I cannot stay here. And I find it very interesting that Isaiah, of all people, describes his sin as a sin of unclean lips. Isaiah's job, what was his job? It starts with a P. He was a what? There's a prophet, he spoke on behalf of God, thus saith the Lord. More than likely, he is probably the most righteous individual in all of Israel. And yet, he says, my lips are sinful. When I speak on behalf of the Lord, it is tainted with sin. I am a man of unclean lips. He doesn't compare himself to others. He doesn't say, well, I'm better than so-and-so, so I'll be okay in the presence of God. He compares himself to God alone, and when we compare ourselves to God, all of us fall short of his holiness on display. He says, I am ruined. I am condemned. I'm lost. I think because the wrath of God is such a horrifying thing to think about, We've designed cliche phrases. We've designed ways to try and skirt around the issue, try and get around this. I don't want to stare at the wrath of God and realize he has wrath stored up against my sin. I don't like that idea. That's kind of the the Old Testament God, right? No, that is God, very God, unchanging. Old Testament, New Testament, today, we have phrases like God hates the sin and loves the sinner. And I totally understand that phrase. Totally understand it. Totally agree with the concept with the understanding that God hates the sin that we do, but he loves the sinner. He died for sinners. We know that that's true. John 3:16, he loved the world while we were yet in our trespasses and sins, God died for us. But we need to be careful that cliché phrases Don't twist and distort our understanding of our lostness. Turn to Psalm chapter 5. Psalm chapter 5. Does God hate the sin? And I would ask it this way. Only have love for the sinner? Oh, he loves the sinner. But does he have only love? Is there anything else that he has for the sinner? Psalm chapter 5, verse 5. Psalm 5.5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You hate all who do iniquity. This is why God does not throw sin into hell. God throws sinners into hell. God hates all who do iniquity. Our problem is not that we have messed up. Our problem is not that we have done something wrong. Our problem is that we are sinfully lost, rebellious to the core, haters of God, Romans tells us. And therefore, God's wrath is stored up for us. People have asked, why would we have to spend an eternity in hell? Pain for 90 years of a sinful life? If we live to the ripe old age of 90, Pain for 90? 90 years of a sinful life, does that really deserve infinity? Of punishment, again, we're misunderstanding what that punishment, where that punishment comes from. If I were to say to Brian Nix, as we are surfing together, let's say we're surfing the Mavericks because this is just going to be fun and we can't get hurt when we're just talking about it. We're surfing the Mavericks together and we both see a wave that we love and we both want to drop in and I say, can I go? And he says, no way. And he drops in and he cuts me off and I flip, my board snaps in half. And we, we both get to the shore, and in a somewhat facetious manner, but also somewhat deep down in my wicked soul, I say, man, I hate you. I'm going to kill you, Brian. He would just look at me and laugh and go, I'm so sorry I did that. You can take the next one. I'll sit this one out. Go ahead. No consequence. But if while I'm taking a tour of the White House, I say, I'm going to kill you, President Obama. Obama. I'm putting handcuffs right away. Why? Because even though Brian is a pretty awesome guy, his value according to the nation is less than President Obama's. And the consequence that I incur for my offense is to the degree of the person and their worth that I sin against. So if we sin against an infinite God, then the consequence and the punishment we receive is infinite punishment. Some people say, well, that's not really loving. God just loves people. That's not really loving. No, it's the most loving thing to do. If you truly love something, then you must have hatred in your heart for the thing that opposes it. I love my daughter. I love little children. I love going into the nursery and seeing all the kids playing together. And therefore, because of that, I hate pedophilia. I hate it. If you love the Jewish people, you will hate what happened in the Holocaust. If you don't hate what happened in the Holocaust, my question to you is, do you genuinely love the Jewish people? And so God, seeing our sin, our offense against an infinite God, condemns us to an eternal punishment, experiencing the wrath of God. And really, if we think about our own sin, it's worthy, it's just. Nobody in hell is ever going to say, This is not just everyone who ends up in hell says, I'm getting exactly what I deserve. Just think about the flow of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything, calls it good. Genesis chapter 2, he's looking upon his creation, giving commands, tells Adam, there's only one thing. Just don't eat of that tree that's in the middle of the garden. And not even three chapters in. We're already questioning, does God really have my best interest in mind? I think I have a better idea than God does, and I'm going to eat of the tree even though he tells me not to. Sin, as R.C. Sproul says, is cosmic treason. Sin is not, oh, I messed up. I did something wrong. Sin is ultimately at its essence saying, God, you are king and you reign supreme, but you're telling me not to do something that I want to do or to do something that I don't want to do. So ultimately, God, I wish you were dead, and I wish I was in your place because I want to do what I want to do. Sin is cosmic treason. Isaiah knows this, and that's why he says, because of my unclean lips, I am cursed, I am condemned. Let us be not ignorant and indifferent to the reality of hell, the biblical reality of our lostness, because if we, if we pull out the intensity of the bad news, then we suck the life out of the, the good news. If the bad news is this bad, then the good news is this good. If the bad news is more mind-bogglingly horrific than we could possibly imagine, then the good news that surpasses and covers and destroys the bad news is incomprehensible. That's truth number three. Not only do we have an incomprehensibly glorious God, not only are we a sinfully lost people deserving of the wrath of God alone, but number three, we have a graciously merciful Savior. We have a graciously merciful Savior. Isaiah sees his sin in light of God's holiness, and he cries out in his depravity and says, I am condemned, and the Lord responds in mercy. Verse six, then one of the burning ones, the seraphim, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. So the burning one isn't even able to take this coal from the altar right off the bat with his hands he has to use tongs so however hot this burning one is this coal is even more intensely hot than this seraphim can handle takes it with the tongs as it starts to cool down a bit he holds it in his hand and he touches the lips and the mouth of isaiah with it verse 7 and says behold this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven that's, that's it? You are a sinner condemned to die, and then God says, no, nah, we washed it away. It's gone. How can this be? How can this be? Is God just turning a blind eye to it? Is he just, um, I'll forgive and forget. I just won't worry about it today. How can this be? Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah answers how this is possible. We don't just get to go free because God decides not to punish us, If we are to go free, two things must happen. Someone must endure the penalty of our sin and somebody must stand in the place of us sinners. And that's exactly what Isaiah prophesies through God speaking to him of the suffering servant that is going to come and endure the penalty of sin and stand in the place of sinners. Isaiah 53, let's start in verse four. And notice how many times we are in this passage First person plurals being used. Us, we, our. Verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourgings, we are healed. All of us, like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. How can God look at sinners and say, your iniquity is removed and taken away? This is how. He takes our iniquity, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and he places it on the one who knew no sin, the perfect, righteous, spotless lamb of God, places all of our sin upon the Savior, and then crushes the Savior with the penalty and the wrath of God that was stored up for our sin that is now placed upon Jesus and crushes Jesus on the cross taking away our iniquity, not only removing the penalty of our sin, but also giving us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So I ask again, does God hate sinners? Yes, look at the cross. God had to crush sin and sinners commit sin, so God hates sinners with holy hatred. But I ask again, does God love sinners? Yes, look at the cross. God crushed his son so that we could go free. God has both holy hatred and holy love for sinners, and that, my friends, is the story of the Bible. That is the story of grace. It's really the question that the Bible answers, and the answer is the cross. How can God both have holy hatred for sinners and holy love for sinners? The answer is the cross. And God looked upon his son as his son was bearing the wrath that was stored up for you and for me. And he looks upon his son as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? And then Jesus cries out, it is finished. It's paid in full. There is not an ounce of God's wrath left for you to drink. Paid in full. Commits his spirit to his father, is buried, and three days later his father vindicates his sacrifice and says, this atones for the sins of all who would believe. This is it. This is how Isaiah's iniquity is removed. Back in chapter 6, the coal that is in the hands of the seraphim, in our context, is the cross that cleanses our sin, cleanses us, the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. As he touches Isaiah's mouth, verse 7 of chapter 6, behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, it's taken away, and your sin is forgiven. We have a graciously merciful Savior, precious redeemer and friend a lamb who was slaughtered so that we could be set free not only do we have an incomprehensibly glorious god and not only are we a sinfully lost people and not only do we have a graciously merciful savior but number four we see these in verses eight through nine we have an indescribably urgent message and mission We have an indescribably urgent message and mission. We must get the message of the cross out to those who do not believe. Surely the God who is as holy as God is and as loving and gracious as God is warrants far more from us than simply praying a prayer, walking an aisle, raising a hand. He deserves our allegiance. He demands that we follow him as slaves. Surely this God warrants far more than nominal adherence or casual acceptance. Yeah, I'll follow him. Will you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him? Will you hate father and mother, brother and sister in comparison to the way that you love Jesus Christ? Will you pursue him and him alone? This message of the gospel demands total abandonment to every affection, every desire, every dream, every hope that we've ever had. We crucify it all and we live for Jesus. And then, verse 8, Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send to preach the good news, to preach this message? And who will go for us? A beautiful picture of the Trinity. Who's going to go for the Godhead? And Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. Notice, he's been a prophet speaking on behalf of God all of this time. But he says, here am I, send me after the coal has cleansed his lips, after his iniquity has been taken away. Only then are we truly motivated to share the gospel. Only then can we go out with the gospel that we know has power because we see its power in our own lives. Going to people next to us and saying, you should believe in the gospel because it frees you from the power of canceled sin when sin reigns and rules in your own heart is the most hypocritical. hypocrisy uh, hypocrisy that we could possibly imagine. We look at that message and we say, what are we doing? But when the gospel takes root in our hearts and our souls and changes our affections and changes our hopes and dreams and changes us from the inside out, that's when we go out to a lost and dying world and say, I have a message you must hear. I have a message you must bow the knee to. One one pastor has a great story. His friend came to him one day when this pastor was not yet saved. His friend came and said, hey, buddy, I need to tell you about Jesus. So let's line that up. When's that going to happen? I don't have time right now. How about next Saturday? Great, next Saturday. It's a date. Let's go out to In-N-Out, and then I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Okay, it needs to happen. Do that with somebody next to you. Do that with your neighbors. Do that with your coworkers. I need to tell you about Jesus. Here am I. Send me. Send me. And we need to go with urgency. That's why this entire study coming up will be about the urgency of the message and the mission that we have. We must go with urgency. Why? Let me give you just three reasons why we must be urgent to reach the unreached. Number one, we must be urgent because the knowledge of unbelievers that they have of God, the knowledge of God that unbelievers have is only good enough to damn them. Their knowledge is only good enough to condemn them to eternity in hell. You say, well, what happens to the innocent guy in Africa who's never heard the gospel? What happens to that innocent guy in Africa who has never heard the gospel? What happens to him? I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, the Bible says that innocent guy in Africa, when he dies, instant heaven, instant heaven. Because we just ask, what happens to the innocent guy in Africa? Well, if he's innocent, then he goes to heaven instantly, but there is no such person. There is no such innocent man in Africa who's never heard the gospel. Everybody knows, everybody sees Romans 1, they see in creation the holiness of God on display. That is the problem. There is no innocent man. And so there are over 2.5 billion people in the world who have never even heard of the gospel. And all they have is enough knowledge to condemn them to hell forever. Oh, we have an urgent mission to go out to the world and proclaim the truth of the gospel Number two, the reason why we have an urgent mission and an urgent message is because the gospel of God is powerful enough to save them, to save everyone. It's powerful enough to save us. It can be powerful enough to save anybody. There is not a people group on this planet for whom the power of the gospel will not work. And if we understand that, truly understand that, we will go with urgency to proclaim the message of the gospel. And number three, We have an urgent message and an urgent mission because the glory of God is more than enough to satisfy everyone's souls forever. The glory of God is more than enough to satisfy everyone's soul for all of eternity. That's why Jesus prays in John 17, I desire that my disciples, my followers, my believers that believe in me and turn from sin, repent and turn to me, I desire that all of them would depart from this world and be with me in heaven So that they may, what? It's not live in a mansion, ride on waves, and not worry about getting eaten by a shark, never have pain, eat whatever you want. No, it's so that they might see my glory. God's glory satisfies our souls in ways that no other thing in this universe can. So we have an incomprehensibly glorious God. We are a sinfully lost people We have a graciously merciful Savior and we have an indescribably urgent message and mission to share with the world. My question to Christ Bible Church is, are we doing that? Are we sharing this message? What fears do we have about the proclamation of the gospel from our own lips? What are those fears that keep us from sharing? What are the fears that we have? My prayer is that as we study this next book, as we study through The gospel and personal evangelism, you'll see every time you open your mouth to share the gospel and are faithful to be obedient to that command, it's a win-win. No matter if somebody gets saved, if somebody throws a sandwich in your face, or if somebody says, I hate your guts and I never want to see you again. It's a win-win because you've been faithfully obedient to the gospel and to the message that God has commanded us to proclaim. That's why we are going to sing, we're going to close this morning by singing, Take My Life and Let It Be. I want it to be consecrated, holy, set apart to you and to no other. And this foundation of the gospel, a holy God, a sinfully lost people, saved by a mercifully gracious Savior, and then sent with an amazingly urgent message to preach. That gospel message is what will be the foundation for us seeing the mind of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 next week. Father, I thank you for your word that is so clear, that breaks all stereotypes, that breaks all cliches, that breaks all notions, all paradigms of our goodness, and reminds us, based on the holiness of God, that we are a sinfully lost people, but oh, we have a wonderfully merciful Savior. God, I pray that even now as we sing words that are set to music, that this would simply be a prayer, not a song per se, but a genuine prayer from our very souls with thanksgiving to you for what you've done in our lives. Oh God, we say thank you. I could never earn your favor. I could never earn the kindness that you've lavished upon me. And I can't wait for the day that I get to see you face to face and just utter those words for the first time seeing my Savior. Thank you. Until that day, I want to thank you with my life. I want to share the message that has saved my heart with as many people as I possibly can because you are so deserving of their praise. So, Father, we as a collective group, as Christ Bible Church, we pray take our lives, let them be set apart to you and to you alone. Take everything that we have our hands, our feet, our mouths, whatever we have, it's yours. And individually, we say, God, show me how I can live for you. Who around me does not believe this message of the gospel? Who around me, if they died today, would spend eternity separated from you? God, make us faithful to share with boldness, with clarity, with love, and with grace. Here we are. Send us.